There's a conflict in magic. This is a controversial opinion, but hear me out. There's a conflict in magic between quality and practicality. You can optimize a piece of magic for flexibility, or you can optimize it for strength. But I can only think of a handful of exceptions where it's possible to do both. Usually, when you're creating magic, like when you're creating anything, there's a compromise. It was the brilliant Darwin Ortiz who said it first and best. If you could work 10% harder to make a piece of magic 90% more powerful, would you do it? Of course you would. But what if you had to work 90% harder to make a piece 10% stronger? What about 300% harder to make it 10% stronger? While the answer is still yes, yes you would, I recognize that it's complicated. The minute you start to really do it, you start to take something from your imagination and subject it to the extraordinary ordeal of becoming real, the issues of compromise and quality and practicality become urgent and unavoidable. So today we're going to talk about practicality versus quality, creativity versus compromise, taking your work from the safety of your notebook and making it in the world with all of the challenges and opportunities that this entails. You're listening to Everything But The Flame. My name is Nate Staniforth. Welcome to episode six. Ladies and gentlemen. So then I started to be interested in these things that mystified people. There it is. That's the magic part. A classical trick of magic. And I knew right then and there that I was being called to be a magician. Thank you very much once again, everybody, for viewing in. A few years ago, I attended an art fair. And in the event that you haven't been to an art fair, before this one I hadn't either, let me just set the scene for you. The fair had been set up on either side of a street running through the downtown of my city. So they blocked off the traffic, and on either side of the road, artists had put up these wedding-style tents, each the size of a small room, filled with their artwork. So you could walk into a tent and you'd see stand after stand of painting or sculpture or jewelry, and then usually the artist would be there and you could speak with them about their work. It's great. So on this day... I walked into the tent of a landscape photographer. And it's worth pointing out that, at least for me, most of the images I see on a daily basis are on social media, which is to say, most of them are taken by regular people on their phones and posted to Facebook or Instagram. And that's great, but it's easy to forget how stunning a full-size print created by a professional photographer can be. Because this guy's work was on an entirely different level. It was jaw-dropping. He specialized in large-format landscape photography. Very briefly, and I learned this from him, a large-format camera uses a plate of film, actual film, the size of a postcard, which allows the photographer to capture an unbelievable amount of richness and detail in the image. But there's a trade-off. The camera itself is enormous. It's the size of a small shoebox. He actually had it there so we could all see it. And it was huge. I bet it weighed 15 pounds. This massive steel and glass block bolted to the top of a tripod that looked like it had been designed to absorb the recoil from a machine gun. This was a serious piece of kit. And he'd carry this thing on his back out into the wilderness to get these landscape shots. He and I spoke for quite some time, and he explained that 
he'd often bring camping equipment and maybe a tent because it's not just about getting the camera to the right place, but also getting there at the right time. Maybe you need the light of the setting sun or the sun coming up in the morning or a certain amount of cloud cover. So, so he'd hike out with this camera and set up his tent and then just wait for just the right moment before he could get the picture that he came there to take. I was fascinated by this. But I was curious why it was necessary to use such a big camera. Camera technology has come so far, even in the last decade. Couldn't you get a similar picture with a smaller camera? And, and he said, yeah, of course, you could get a similar picture with a smaller camera. But that in dozens and dozens of small but meaningful ways, his approach was better, just better, higher quality. But then he said, and this is why I'm telling you this story, he said, quote, this is my work. This is my life. I am not trying to make it easy. I am trying to make it great. Now, of course, the issue of, quote, greatness, of quality, depends entirely on what you're trying to make. No one would suggest that the only way to make great photographs is to buy a large format camera and lug it around. There's another photographer working today. He's an award-winning commercial photographer named Chase Jarvis, who is a longtime champion of the iPhone camera as a serious creative tool, even back in the beginning when the iPhone camera was in its two-megapixel infancy. Because in his creative work, Photography is about capturing a moment in your life as you live it, finding inspiration in your daily existence and documenting it. So for him, it's not about the camera or the landscape, but the moment, wherever you are and whenever it comes. And when someone asked him about gear, about the best camera to use, he said, quote, the best camera is the one you have with you. So two very different approaches to making pictures. But what both of these photographers have in common is that their tools and their priorities align with the work they're trying to do. The large format camera fits into the creative project, if you will, of creating fine art landscape photography prints. And the iPhone camera is a great tool, maybe even the best tool, for the kind of daily life photography Chase Jarvis was talking about. My point is that there's a harmony between the work they're trying to create and the decisions they're making along the way as they create it. Both of them are making a compromise in their work. There are a lot of pictures you can't take with a 15-pound box camera. There are a lot of pictures that won't work with an iPhone. But for each of them, it's a compromise that doesn't affect the quality of the work they're doing because they've identified where they need to be uncompromising in their work. For the landscape photographer, it's in image quality. For the daily life photographer, it was in portability. And by knowing where they had to be uncompromising, they could also recognize where they had the flexibility necessary to get the work finished. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this already. Magicians face these same decisions every day. I need to pause for a moment to bring some of the listeners to this podcast up to speed because just based on the messages I'm receiving, I know there are a healthy number of listeners who don't come from the magic world. And that's fine. That's great. I'm glad you're here. But this discussion won't make sense without a little background. So I'm going to try to walk this fine line 
between giving you the information you need to understand the rest of the episode without giving anything away about how magic actually works. Because, you know, secrets. Here we go. To accomplish any given piece of magic, there usually isn't just one possible method, but a number of possible methods. Again, to use the example from photography, you can take a picture of a waterfall with a large format box camera, or you can take it with your iPhone. Both pictures will show the waterfall, but they will be different pictures. They'll feel different. They'll have different strengths and weaknesses. In magic, there isn't one way to make a coin disappear. There are hundreds of ways to make a coin disappear. Some are easy, some are monstrously difficult, some are simple, some are elaborate, and each different solution to the problem of making a coin disappear operates within its own set of trade-offs. This method is easy, but you have to wear long sleeves. This method looks incredible, and you can wear anything you like, but it's going to take a solid decade of practice. This method is so good that it looks like a real-life camera trick, but it requires a secret piece of complicated apparatus that is a hassle to carry around. Part of being a magician means actively managing this sliding scale of strengths and weaknesses and advantages and limitations to create the experience you're trying to share with an audience. And one of the most common considerations is the issue of practicality. It is, of course, convenient when a piece of magic is practical to perform. I am a working professional magician. I understand in a personal three-in-the-morning way just how convenient it is when my show fits into two bags that roll easily from the taxi to the airline counter and each fit under the weight restrictions. I also recognize that sometimes the practicality of the material increases the quality of the actual work. Say, for instance, that you're an amateur magician who likes to be ready with a piece of magic if the right moment presents itself. Then, yeah, I get it. That's like Chase Jarvis using an iPhone camera because being able to have the camera with him at all times allowed him to create the work that he wanted to create. But one of the problems in magic is that practicality usually comes with a cost. And unless we're very careful... It's easy for that cost to be the strength of the material and the impact on the audience. It's taking value away from the part of the work that the audience sees, the magic you perform for them, and adding it to a part of the process that the audience never even considers, maybe an easier time traveling with your equipment, or fewer details to consider as you set up before the show, or a simpler reset between one group at a strolling gig and another. And at least for me, my favorite magicians are moving in the other direction, working 90% harder, which usually means making their magic less practical to make it 10% stronger. Here's an example. One of my favorite magicians in history was a Dutch magician who went by the name Tommy Wonder. He's one of the voices in the opening music sequence to this podcast every week, and, and he's widely considered to be one of the greatest magicians of all time. And when you study his material, and especially the way it, it evolved over time, you can see that he constantly worked to improve even his signature pieces, and that as he did, they became stronger by also becoming less practical. His version of the watch in Nest of Boxes illusion became better, clearly stronger with each iteration. 
Until by the end, the illusion required quite a bit of effort in terms of logistics and the stuff he needed to bring with him to the theater each night. But the illusion itself was a miracle. Even in the world of magic, it was almost impossibly good. So, here's the question I'm considering. How would my work be different if doing it well was all that mattered? To say it another way, where in my work do I need to be uncompromising? And then, by extension, where do I have room for some flexibility so I can actually complete the work I'm trying to create? As a magician, as a performer, as an artist, I don't think you can avoid making compromises in the process of making your work. But I've been thinking about how to keep those compromises out of the performance, out of the part of the process that the audience sees. So, for a moment, as a hypothetical, what if you didn't have to think about airline weight restrictions, or pocket space, or resetting an effect as you move from one group to another at a corporate party? Methodologically, dramatically, creatively, what would you do differently if all you needed to consider was making the work as strong as possible? And then, with that, is there a way to preserve that level of quality by compromising elsewhere? Maybe it means checking a third bag. Maybe it means cutting a weaker routine from a walk-around set to free up some space for a piece of magic equipment. Maybe it means planning ahead for the piece of magic you intend to show your friends, making it less practical, but stronger. One of the ideas I'm trying to advance in this series is that while you do have to consider the practical realities of your work, you don't have to be bound by them. You can do great magic anywhere. But that comes from prioritizing the greatness of the magic and making all other practical considerations accommodate that priority rather than the other way around. A few days ago, I received this message from a magician named Colin in Boston. Hey, Nate, how's it going? My name is Colin. I'm a magician from Boston. Uh, only two episodes into your podcast, but really enjoying it. Um, I really enjoyed that you were, I guess, brave enough to say that saying that my magic is about wonder is a bit of a cop-out that a lot of magicians take to make it sound like their magic's meaningful. Um, I think that people say it a lot when someone asks them what their magic's about and they've never really thought about it but they don't want to say that and also I was really curious you know you talk about your own growth and how you evolved as a magician from a theoretical perspective and you know trying to make sure you didn't stagnate by copying yourself so on and so forth how active of a process was that did you sit down with a notebook and write down what your general theory of magic is and then challenge it in various ways or see its flaws or something like that uh, or was it just you had experiences that made you rethink things uh, and then you just started to kind of take that lens into different stuff uh, as opposed to like a you know did you put work into it i guess is my question or did it kind of just happen colin thanks for the message and the question that's really helpful The point I've been trying to make about wonder is that it's not a magic word. You can't just use the word wonder or astonishment and have that somehow confer the weight and meaning and significance of the experience of wonder on your work. So so by all means, make your work a way to share the experience of wonder with the audience. But then 
actually do it. Don't just say that's what you're doing and then do the same magic you've always done. Build it from the ground up toward that goal and maybe you'll get there. Wonder is great as a goal or a direction for a magician. It's lousy as a replacement for a goal or a direction. You can't just use the word. It has to be real for you and you have to find a way to bring it to life through your work for your audience. Second, you asked how active the process of growing as an artist should be, in theory and in practice. In in 2009, I spent some time in India. That's another story for another time. But when I came home, I started a Word document on my laptop about magic, a kind of running journal of my thinking about magic and wonder, both as craft and art, but, but also just the experience of wonder and what I thought that was about. And I have been adding to that same document ever since. There are times when I write in it every day, sometimes every week. I've been mining it pretty heavily for these podcast episodes. I used it when I wrote my book. And and it represents a 12-plus year understanding of magic as it is and as I want it to become. And I have to be honest, I can't believe I didn't think to talk about this journal on the podcast until I received your question It's one of the most important tools I have because I can go back and see the trajectory of these ideas and how they've evolved and are still evolving. So to your question, my exploration of these subjects was a highly active process. It's still an ongoing process. And I recommend starting a similar journal yourself if you're interested in finding your own way forward as a magician. There's a quote by the writer Flannery O'Connor she said, I write to discover what I know. And, and I love that thought, a written journal as a way to discover what you already think about something. And, and it offers a structure for further development that can maybe be more useful than just turning everything over and over again in your thoughts. If you have a question about this episode or anything else I've covered in the series, I'd love to hear it. You can send me a voice message or a DM on Instagram. I'm at Nate Staniforth, that's N-A-T-E-S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H on Instagram, and I'll include it in the show. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. More from me soon.